you so much for joining us this week at Zion City Church with teachings from Pastor Andrew Rael. We believe that God still speaks through His Word and His people. So right now, lean in and listen to the Holy Spirit. We hope that this message encourages you, inspires you, and brings you into a deeper love and worship of Jesus. Thanks for listening, and thanks for being a part of Zion City Church. Now, there's a couple of conversations I think that all of us have in our lives that we always remember. Um, Maybe good conversations about future things and planning and stuff, but there's also some um, conversations that maybe were hard to have that we always remember. One of those for me, I've had a lot of them in my life, but one of those for me for sure, um, recently we had an elders meeting where uh, Jake and I are the elders of the church right now, which is basically we provide spiritual oversight for the church. And uh, there we talk about the spiritual climate of what's happening in Zion, things that are happening within us, the direction of the church, where we're going, and things of that nature. And also that time is to really lay bare what's happening in our hearts and what's going on in our lives. And one of the conversations that, um, that we've had recently is, and we're being honest here, um, that I have a propensity within me to be insensitive at times. Now, if you've known, people laugh because it's true. But, um, I'm bearing my heart, guys. Come on now. Um, but I have a propensity in me to be insensitive at times that uh, sometimes uh, I, I lean too heavily upon tough love and aren't as empathetic as I should be. And so one of the conversations that we're having was him lovingly confronting me in my inability to display real empathy and that I was sometimes just like, all right, you're okay, come on, move on, you know, and kind of just trying to move the chariot along rather than really being with somebody in their things. And the, when those kind of conversations happen, the first thing that I want to do, and I feel that you might want to do, is become immediately defensive and saying, insensitive? <laughs> you know, let me tell you the list of all the ways that I'm not insensitive, and here's point A, point B, point C, right? And you have the whole formula of the argument planned out about how you're going to destroy the argument and uphold your character that you are, right? But with humility, you receive those things because the reason that he's having the conversation with me isn't because he hates me and wants me to, to never grow and he wants to just discourage me. It's because he loves me. He tells me, bro, you need to be more sensitive. You need to be more empathetic. You need, to be, you need to be more gentle with people. And so the reason we have these kinds of conversations is, one, A, I'm not above anybody. Just because I've come up here and teach, I am just as responsible to the community as anybody else. And that we have leadership in place that is able to call me on the carpet for all of my garbage, too. Because we believe this is fundamentally a marker of a follower of Jesus as having people in your life who call you on your stuff. Because every single person in this room has blind spots. We all think that we are better than we are, right? We all me? And sensitive? Are you kidding? Never, you know? And they start putting, there was this time and this time. Remember when you said that? And then they did this and you're just, oh, yeah, you know? But we all have these blind spots that we're not aware of. These areas of our life where we think things are perfectly normal and fine until somebody points out our dysfunction. You see this happen when couples get married, right? So when they first start to live together and all like the quirks and things come out, it's like, why do you load the dishwasher that way, right? There's all these different things that you didn't realize were weird or strange, right? And then all these things start coming up and then the person you're married, you're like, why do you do that, you know? Or how can you do it that way? And those are just real surface level things. But as time goes on, right, and the butterflies and the excitement and the honeymoon f- phase fades, 
what starts to be left are some real character qualities lacking, right? That somebody's prone to anger. That somebody's can be rude or short or harsh. That somebody in the relationship is insensitive or unwilling to admit fault. And so there's all these different things that start to bubble up at the surface and start to reveal themselves, and you were never aware of these things, right? You were never aware of how selfish you were until now your life is fully integrated with another person. For those of you people who are always punctual and on time, you never realized how rude and harsh you could be. The person that you married is someone who is at their own pace, you know, there you are waiting at the door. Come on, hurry up. Where's the bag? Where's this? I'll be waiting in the car. You start the car. You start honking the car, right? You're waiting for this person to hurry up and get moving. And you didn't realize how insensitive you were or how selfish you were. Instead of, hey, how can I help you move along a little bit faster? Whatever, you're already trying to conform somebody to your schedule. But this is realized. This is brought out. This is exposed when you live life closely with another person. The reality here is everybody in this room has junk that we still do and junk that we bring to the table. Now, one of the biggest detriments to the church is they think the best response for this is for nobody to talk about it and everybody pretend that they're fine, right? That's the way that we think. We just shove it all underneath the rug. We'll deal with it at a later time. But what ends up happening is the community implodes on itself. Because everybody's aware of this junk, everybody deals with this junk, but nobody's talking about it. And that's not the model that we have in the New Testament for what a church looks like. The church in the New Testament looks like people who are lovingly confronting each other, that we would all look more like Jesus. Now, the real question becomes, well, what is this junk? What is this mess? What is this stuff that we bring to the table? Now, the Bible displays for us a paradigm of what we call sin. Now, sin is really broken up throughout the scriptures into three separate categories, which, we call, which we've called the paradigm of human brokenness. The first is sin, the next is transgression, and the next one is iniquity. Let's talk about sin first. So sin is uh, typically used as an archery term, and it means to miss the mark. It means that your intention, if you're going to be using a bow and arrow and you're shooting into a target, is to hit the what? The bullseye. That's your intention. And so a sin in that case would be you missing the mark, you missing hitting the bullseye in any way, shape, or form. And for the authors of the New Testament and for really the entirety of the scriptures, this is laid out for us in this idea of failing to love God and failing to love people. That's missing the mark of the human existence is failing to love God and failing to love people. And we see this uh, specifically displayed in something like the Ten Commandments. The first five are uh, how we love God, and the last five are how we love people. And Jesus, when he was asked, what is the greatest commandment, Jesus said, Two, to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself. That this idea of loving God and loving people is the mark that we want to hit as human beings. But if we're honest, it's the one that we miss often. And the, and the scriptures are all, all this narrative about how human beings continually miss that mark. The next is this idea of transgression. And this means to violate the trust of another person. Right? We see this all throughout the scriptures in the Old Testament when nations have agreements with each other or people have agreements with each other and they kind of go behind each other's back or they have ulterior motives or they are manipulative of one another and they violate the trust of another person. 
And this is this idea of transgression, that you are uh, being manipulative, that you are being deceitful, and that you are kind of going around the back and trying to go about things another way. And the last one is this idea of iniquity. Now, this has the uh, connotation of it to be bent or crooked, but not just the idea of being bent or crooked, but also its consequences. So if we were to live a life that is bent or crooked or not the way that it should be, not just being bent or crooked, but also their consequences. And so these are the three ways that this biblical authors use to describe this paradigm of human brokenness. And this is something that we all live in every single day. Because of our sin, because of our iniquity, because of our transgression, we have been separated from the life with God. Because God in his nature is holy and good and righteous. And we, most often, than, most often than not, are not those things. We are not holy. We are not good. We are not righteous. And this kind of way of living life, this way of rebellion, of missing the mark, of being deceitful, of living a life that is bent or crooked and its consequences has separated us from the life with God. And so in the beginning in Genesis, when the first act of this takes place, when Adam and Eve uh, rebel against God's good way and decide to take the knowledge of good and evil for themselves, God initiates a plan. And he says that he will send somebody as a seed of the woman, that the serpent would strike his heel, but he would crush the serpent's head. And this is a promise that God is initiating a plan to redeem us from the death that we've brought upon ourselves. You see, God sends himself in the person of Jesus to deal with our sin, transgression, and iniquities. Now, not just to deal with the act but also the consequences, and not just the consequences, but also the root. Because Jesus, in laying down his life for us, has absorbed all of that sin, all of that transgression, all of that iniquity into himself, and he has buried it in the grave. And he has overcome those things by rising again and promising to give us life and life to the full. And he has taken it upon himself to reconcile us again to God. You see this image that after Jesus uh, has been crucified, that the veil in the temple is torn. And this is an, an idea that the presence of God is no longer held in a single place for the Jewish people, but the presence of God has been unleashed on the world. That what we had lost in the garden, we gained at the cross. And that through the death and resurrection of Jesus, we have again been reconciled to God, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians. And so we can be with God and enjoy him fully. And as we await his kingdom fully coming here, we um, are, at, we are uh, ambassadors of his kingdom here and now. Now, it's important for us to lay out this theological ground as we come to this place because we first have to acknowledge that every single one of us is jacked up. Every single person in this room commits sins, transgressions, and iniquities. Every single person in this room. And we have to first come to the place of saying, we are all broken. And that's why we gather, is because we say we are all broken and we desperately need the life of Jesus. We desperately need the presence of God. And also, too, we don't want to stay that way. 
And so what is our response to this story? What is our response to the thing that Jesus has done on our behalf? The biblical authors use this word of repentance. And it means two things. One, to change your mind and also to change your direction. The way I think about this best is actually what our sermon title is today is the way back home. And it means this, that every single person as an individual has embarked on a journey away from God. We've embarked on this journey to go and to pursue what we deem to be good and evil for ourselves, right? We make up our own rules, we go our own way, and in doing so, we embark on a journey of selfishness where we decide, I'm going to determine for myself what is actually good and what is a good decision to make and how I'm supposed to be doing those things regardless of anybody else's opinion. And we go out onto this journey and we rebel against the Lord. And this idea of repentance is seeing the situation accurately first and saying, I'm not doing things God's way. I'm not doing things in accordance with his heart. I'm actually missing the mark of what it means to be human. And then to change your mind. To say, I'm actually not going to think that way anymore. I'm actually not going to be that way anymore. And not just to change your mind and then now your theology is formed and you can tell everybody what God's heart and desires are but your life looks different but also to change your direction to now move in that way, to kind of return your way. So if all of us have embarked on this journey and left life with God behind us, that repentance is returning back home. And that as followers of Jesus, we help one another return on the journey back home. We help each of us find the way back home. Now the way that God has decided to do this is through community, through a group of people coming together desiring to be like Jesus. Community is central to the process of becoming like Jesus by dealing with our brokenness. Now, Paul is writing here in our teaching text to a church in Galatia. Now, there's all sorts of things happening with this church, but one of the things that is happening with this church is an inability to deal with sin in the community, and if they do deal with it, dealing with it in a poor manner. Now, I know a lot of people in this room have been wounded by the church, because maybe, uh, okay, one of the biggest critiques of the church is that all, we're all filled with, a, we're a room full of what? Hypocrites, right? Because we call people to a higher standard. Don't do that. Don't do this. Don't go there. Don't say those words. Don't do that. But then, behind the scenes, we're not those people. We're completely different. And the idea of hypocrite is somebody who wears them, but we're acting here and they by the thing that we do. And it's a very fair critique of the church. And so for us as followers of Jesus, we've taken this, this responsibility to be the moral police of the world, which is not at all what Jesus is calling us to do here. But as each of us are endeavoring to pursue Jesus, we help each other in that endeavor. And so Paul is writing to these believers saying, there's a better way to go about handling these situations. And the first thing he tells them is this, verse 1. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin... You who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. The thing that he tells us first is that we must respond to sin fundamentally with grace and truth. Community being together, being on mission, following Jesus together as a family is one of the ways that we change to become like Jesus. I like what author Erin Lane, she says this, we need help in weeding out the lies that choke out our 
lives. Every single one of us has blind spots, has areas that we're not aware of, have lies that we believe and live into that we're unaware of until we come into community. And somebody lovingly brings that to light. And so the first thing that we need to understand is we need to lay some ground rules, right? And understanding what this is talking about. So first, if each of us can be deceived and blinded by the reality of our sin, community helps us see those blind spots and lead us to becoming more like Jesus. You have all had an encounter and experience where somebody has told you about a flaw that you had. Now granted, they may not have said it in the way you would have liked, right? They may not have done it in a perfect manner, but there's, there's been a time where somebody's called you on the carpet and what they actually said was true. And you were unaware of those things. Now, often we like to think that our conscience, that the way that we think about things is the best way to navigate this world. But how many times has your thoughts led you astray? How many times were you convinced for a fact, this is the way that things are? And you would look at your life, you know, five years ago and be like, thank God I don't believe those things anymore, right? Or thank God I didn't have that same perspective. Because as time goes on, these, these flaws get exposed and you start to realize your error of thinking. So if the only thing that you're trusting is something that has proven itself to be faulty and fail at times, right, where is that leading you? And so we have to call to a, a higher authority and we have to call to other people who can see our blind spots. Now, first, we have to understand, again, the ground rules. One, Paul says, if a brother or sister, and this is super important, we don't have conversations about people and their sin unless they are a follower of Jesus. Some followers of Jesus have taken it upon themselves to be the moral police of the world, telling everybody and everything why they're wrong, what they're doing, and they're taking Facebook by storm, right? They're letting everybody know about these things. But they're expecting people who don't follow Jesus to live like people who follow Jesus. That doesn't make any sense. You see, we're trying to get them to uh, curate and modify their behavior before they're even in relationship with him. And we have that backwards. The heart posture, the goal, is first and foremost that they're a brother or a sister. Why the church is repulsive to most is because people have stuck their neck out and said, let me give you advice that you do not want, that is unwarranted, that you don't care for, and let me call you to a standard of which you don't agree with, and if you don't do it, I'll condemn you. You know, and we, we think, what is everybody's deal? Why are we hated? It's partially because of the way that we've responded. So first and foremost is, is this person a brother or a sister? Are they even a follower of Jesus? Before we even have this conversation, I really want to talk to my sister or my auntie or my friend or my, about what's going on. I'm like, first, are they a believer? Because if they're not, that's the first line that we want to cross. We just want to say, man, do you know Jesus? Can I share with you about what he's done in my life before we ever start to modify people's behavior? And so all of this, before we preference anything into confronting sin and using grace and using truth, happens within the context of a relationship. Before you can speak into anybody's life, you have to have a platform in their life. And the way that you develop a platform is showing that you genuinely care about the person. There's a famous phrase, people don't care what you know unless they know that you what? Care. Now, it's cheesy, but it's true. That the only place you ever get to the ability to have any sort of authority or, or leverage in somebody's life or influence 
is if you show one you actually care about the person. I think why people are so afraid of community is because they don't feel genuinely loved and cared for, and they're worried and they're scared about bringing these things forward because they don't think that the people in the room actually love and care them enough to walk through those things. And that maybe in the past they've brought these things forward and have been abused, have been gossiped about, have been deeply wounded. And so by us gathering here, the thing that we're committed to is having first a context of relationship, even with one another. So not just, do they come to Zion City Church, that's our context of relationship, but man, do I know their name? Do I know where they're from? Do I know what's happening in their life? Have I proven and established that they know that I love them and that I care about them and that I care what's happening in their life? There must be a context of relationship before there's ever a conversation of correction. And so that's the place that we have to start. Now, the word that Paul says here is somebody who is caught in a sin. So this idea of being caught in a sin is not somebody who's in willful disobedience, right? So somebody who's in willful disobedience is, I know what the scriptures say, and I don't care. That's not this person that we go to and try to plead with and try to win back. Somebody who's in willful disobedience is in a whole separate category. But somebody who's caught in a sin, it's this idea of stumbling into or falling into. Somebody who's wrestling through a stronghold. It's somebody who doesn't want to be that way, but is currently grappling or wrestling or struggling to not be that way anymore. And so this is the person to which Paul is calling us to speak with. And one of the things that we have to understand is this. To genuinely love someone is to confront them in their mess. To genuinely love somebody is to confront them in their mess. Now, uh, parents in the room, um, you know if your kids were doing like drugs and smoking and drinking excessively, right? You would have a conversation with them because you love them. That this is not the ideal path for you to follow down because we know the consequences of these things in your life. To love them isn't to allow them to keep going down their path, but to lovingly confront them. Now, you can't change them. You can't manipulate them to be something else. All you can do is confront and present a conversation. But the most loving thing for you to do as a parent is to intervene in some form or fashion and say, listen, this isn't the best way to life. This isn't the life that you want to live. Now, if we knew somebody was actively poisoning their life, would the loving thing be to do to let them be? If somebody was doing something that was wrecking and destroying their life, if you genuinely love that person, you'll say, I don't care if they're mad at me. I'm going to have a conversation about this because I want them to be alive. I want them to live a little bit longer. But see, when it comes to areas of sin, we as a church are afraid to have conversations. We're afraid to have conversations about what's actually happening. But if we believe what Jesus says that the way of the flesh leads to death, why aren't we having conversations about these things? And if we believe that Jesus' teachings truly lead to life and to life to the full, why aren't we willing to step in into that moment? And so for us as followers of Jesus, to genuinely love somebody is to confront them. And as also being willing to be confronted not just have the opportunity to let me tell everybody else what's going on in their life, but to be humble enough to receive words from another person. And the call of this community is to be a community that is holy, 
Now, this word has all kinds of weird connotations to it, right? Because of how it's been used in the past. When we think of the word holy, we think all of us need to be rocking like these white garments that we just go, oh, when we step into the room, right? We got the halo, we're glowing. Some of us have the power to levitate or something like that because of how holy we are. And that's not the way that the Bible uses that word. The, way of, the, the, the idea of holiness is this idea of set apart. And the best definition I heard of that is holiness is a life lived out of the reality of the kingdom of God. That for a person to be holy, they live in the reality of where God rules and reigns. That somebody who is holy is somebody who lives underneath the lordship and the teachings of Jesus and allows those to shape and lead their life. That's what it means to be holy. All that other stuff is just weird stuff that we've attached onto that. Now, is there like a moral goodness that comes with that? For sure. But is that what holiness is? No. Holiness is us living in the reality of the kingdom of God. And for us as a community, we're called to that. To be a follower of Jesus means that you follow Jesus. Like, as crazy as that sounds, to be a follower of Jesus means that you're going to take his teachings and implement them into your life. That you're not going to follow him in theory. That you're not going to follow him by just having a bumper sticker on your car or putting it in your Twitter bio. But that you're genuinely following after what he said is life and life to the full. And that's the commitment of the people here in this room. And if that's not your commitment here in this room, we're happy that you're here, but that's ultimately the direction we want to be moving towards is we want to be like Jesus. We don't want to talk about him. We don't want to just have things that are like him. We want to actually be like him because that's the purpose and intent of following him. And so Paul calls us to one first, meet it with grace. And the heart posture here is this. First, it's a heart posture of restoration, not condemnation. Paul says, you who live by the Spirit he says, restore this person. But the way that sin often gets dealt with in the community is condemnation. How could you do that? I would never do that. Did you hear about what she did? Can you believe that? Condemning. Saying that this person is now the sum of the decisions that they've made. And they are now less than us because they've made these decisions. That is not the call of the church. The call of the church is restoration. We say, you've fallen, let me help you get back up. You've made a mistake, let me help you fix that mistake. You're hurting, let me hurt with you and help bind up these wounds. The call of the church is always restoration. You don't have to make people feel guilty about the decisions that they made. Your job is not the Holy Spirit to convict. Your job is to restore. The Spirit does what the Spirit does. Your job is to be obedient, to restore a person. Bring them back to life. Bring them back to health. The next is mercy, not judgment. Now, there's that passage in Matthew 7 that every person in the world who like, doesn't like followers of Jesus knows. And it's, doesn't the Bible say not to judge? And that's true, but what they're usually meaning is, I don't want anybody to talk to me about my life ever, so don't you ever talk to me about my life ever. Like, don't judge me. But this idea of judgment means to proclaim a reality over a person. And so to judge somebody would be, if somebody drank too much, to judge them would be, you're a drunk. And it's like, that's not really the case. 
they drank too much, but they're not, that's not who they are now. That's something that they have done. And judgment is not the responsibility of human beings to place upon another. Judgment is God's job, right? He determines what somebody is or isn't or what their reality is or isn't. That's not our job as the church. And so our heart is then mercy. Mercy because we have been given mercy. We all have done things and we all deserve judgment from God. Because we've said, no thanks, or I don't want your way, or I don't want to do that, and did our own thing, and God has shown us mercy. And so the response for us is then to extend mercy to others. We are not beings who sit in the judgment seat. We are people who extend mercy. You know what Jesus said? Blessed are those who are merciful, for they shall receive mercy. The scriptures also tell us is be careful how we delve out judgments because in the way that we give judgments, judgment will be given to us. I want to be somebody who overly extends mercy because of how bad of mercy I need, right? I want to be somebody who's gracious and loving and kind and restorative because I need that in my life. It's that same principle, like to treat others the way that you would want to be treated. If you want to be treated with mercy and grace in time of need, then you must first initiate that in the lives of other people. So we absolutely don't let sin just go under the rug. We don't just allow things to continue and hope that things eventually change. We deal with it, but we respond with grace. And the next thing is with truth. Now, for us to respond with truth is us to confront lies with the truth of God. Now, what we don't confront people with is our best opinions. And this is really important. Like, I want to tell you, here are the seven reasons why I think you're being a bad person. A one, you know, two, three. We never come out of our own opinions or our own things because our things that, our brains that make the same decisions are just as faulty as theirs, right? We have to appeal to a higher standard of truth. Somebody whose perspective is higher than our own, and we appeal to the, the scriptures, that fundamentally, as a people, we live our lives based around the scriptures because we believe this is God's truth, that this book shapes our lives and it shapes our worldview because our own way of thinking about things has proven itself to be faulty, and so we appeal to something higher than us, which is God's word. And so as a community, we're centered around Jesus and his teachings, the teachings of Jesus, the teachings of what Jesus says in this book, because we believe that he sincerely has life and life to the full. But there is definitely an element of us confronting each other with this book. I want to point to two examples. One, there's a very famous one. You guys have almost probably all heard of the story of David and Goliath. Now, David was a king, and he was a very uh, notable king, and he was very somebody who uh, was, as the scriptures say, a man after God's own heart. But there's a, a scene, a, a moment in David's life where he's supposed to be out at war, but instead he decides to take a vacation and chill back while all his men go out and fight. And while he's doing that, he sees one of his best friends, Uriah, who's fought with him faithfully. He sees his wife bathing, and he decides to take her for himself, and he sleeps with her, and he gets her pregnant. And so now David's in a dilemma, and he says, what am I going to do? How am I going to respond to the situation? He says, I know. I'll bring Uriah back. You know, we'll fill him with food. We'll send him home. He's been gone for a while, so what will happen will happen, and my hands are clean, you know? Problem solved. 
So he brings Uriah back and he says, bro, come hang out. We're going to have a good time. You want some drinks? You know, loosen him up, a couple glasses of wine, a nice steak or whatever. You know, he's like getting you all loosed up. He's like, go home, dude. Have a good night. We'll see you tomorrow. And Uriah is a man of integrity. He says, as long as my men are out fighting, I will not go. And so David's like, well, there goes that plan. So he goes to the next extreme and says, let's just send him on a suicide mission. And so he does, and he gets his own friend murdered, killed in action, and then David looks like the hero because once his wife becomes a widow, David, in his great mercy, welcomes him into his home and says, I'll take care of her. Thank you very much, everybody. I know how generous I am, right? And then he thinks, problem solved, right? Everything's solved. There's no issues here. Nobody will bat an eye anymore until God sends Nathan into his life. Now, Nathan is what the scriptures say is a prophet. It's a man who hears from the Lord. And so Nathan comes up to him and he shares with David a story. He says, David, let me tell you a story about this guy. He's, he's, a, he's a poor guy. He doesn't have much, but he has this lamb. And he loves this lamb. The lamb sleeps with him and it, it eats foods off the table and the kids ride it in the living room and they love this lamb. They love it so much. They nickname it. They got it at a collar. They get it trimmed at the pet store and all sorts other things. They got little toys for this lamb. They love this lamb. And there's this man who's rich and wealthy and he has all these lots filled with different kinds of lambs but he goes in and he steals that lamb and he murders it and he feeds it to his guests and the whole family is broken. And David gets furious. He says, this dude's alive right now? He's like, let's find this dude. He says, we find this guy, we're going to kill him today. He's gone. And Nathan says, David, you're that man. He says, you took from Uriah what he had and treasured and possessed and loved dearly, which was his wife. And you took it for yourself. David, you are that man. And the scripture says that David breaks down and weeps. And we see his repentance in Psalm 51. God sends Nathans into your life to expose sin you do not know of. The other story I want to share with you is Paul and Peter. So Paul is recently converted and he's going around preaching the gospel and he's kind of like um, the stepchild of the family of the apostles because, you know, kind of has a bad rap as he was murdering followers of Jesus before he got saved. And he's like, I promise I'm on your team now. So a lot of people were skeptical about what was going on with him, but he's going, he's preaching the gospel and the ministry is being fruitful. And there's a time where him and Peter are um, with Jews and Gentiles and he sees Peter when the Jews are around, being real shady to the Gentiles, he's like, these guys are less than us, and they're not, you know, he's being really condemning to those people, and then whenever the Jews leave, he's like, what's up, fam? You know, he's being two-faced, and so Paul kind of has it, and he's like, dude, I'm going to call you on your stuff. He's like, you're one way with these people, and you're one way with another. He says, you're being a hypocrite, Peter. He says, either God saved the Gentiles, or he didn't. Either they're family, or they're not. Stop being inconsistent, and so Paul was a Nathan in Peter's life. And Peter repents and realizes the error of his ways and his own racism, even. And so we have in our lives the necessity for God to meet us through people. Now, there are often times where God will just meet you one-on-one, -on -one, right? Where God just has a word for you and he speaks to you. But can I tell you something? Most of the time, the word of God comes through. The most key markers of my life of change, of shifting, of realizing the error of my way, almost every single one of them has come from somebody who loves me, confronting me in my sin. And so there's grace. It's about mercy. It's not about judgment. It's about restoring. It's about loving. It's about being kind. It's not about condemning. That's never the heart posture, but there is an element to where we have to confront sin in this place.
we have to say, this is not what Jesus desires. This is not God's heart. This is not how we should be living. So Paul says this, that we are to restore that person. How? Gently. But he says, but watch yourselves, or you may also be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. Then they, should, then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. For each one should carry their own load. Nevertheless, the one who receives instruction in the word should share all, in all good things with their instructor. So the first thing he says is we need to restore one another with what? Gentleness. As parents, and I'm guilty as charged, when I want my son to do something, right, you have the parent voice. You know what I'm saying? It just, you go into parent mode. Hey, you know, whatever. And they look at you and they know by the tone of your voice, something's different, right? And so there are times we get really frustrated with our kids. And we think the way that we can get them, the way that we can impose our will on them is by not using gentleness. Stern voice, a hard grab, a look in the eye, a pull close, you know. We're going we're gonna to impose our will on this human being who's living in rebellion, right? And we realize, and we realize that that is not a spirit of gentleness. Now, I am 1,000% in favor of discipline, but discipline and gentleness are two separate things. You can discipline and be firm and be strict and, and uphold values and guidelines and still remain gentle. My failure as a parent time and time again is when I discipline out of frustration and I don't deal with my son with gentleness. That I'm harsh and I'm quick and I'm getting the car, go over there, do this real fast, right? But when I have a spirit of gentleness, I see my son respond in love to guidance and instruction. Hey, son, this is not what we asked you to do. This is not what we say, this is not what we're about as a family. We don't lie, we don't say those things, we don't do this stuff. There are consequences for your actions. Here, there's consequences, whether it's spanking or timeout or whatever it is, right? But it's the heart posture in which we come towards something. There are times in our relationships with other people that we think, that if we raise our voice or if we come in a spirit of harshness or if we use belittling words, we can manipulate their will to become our will. But is this how God deals with us? The Spirit comes and speaks with a voice of gentleness. It's always truth, but it comes in a spirit of gentleness. I want you to think about when you've actually changed your mind about something. Was it when somebody was screaming at the top of the lungs about how you were wrong? Were you just like, compelling argument. Thank you for sharing. I'm actually really going to reconsider how I think about that ideology. No, when it gets tense and they're not coming in a spirit of gentleness, you're hearing none of it because defense mode comes up and you pull out the list. Here's all the ways that you're wrong every single time. Whatever, right? But someone who's come in a spirit of gentleness disarms you. And the call for us as followers of Jesus as we confront sin in our community is to do it with a spirit of of gentleness. This involves the tone that we use, the word selection that we have, the manner and times in which we used to do this. We're not all in a group of people of 20 or 30 people and, you know, hey, Andrew, I just wanted to talk to you about how incredibly insensitive you could be at times, right? We, we choose our things wisely as we learn to be gentle. I love what uh, uh, Francis de, I don't know, it's like French, but it's spelled like sales. Francis de Sali or whatever says. He says this, nothing is so strong as gentleness. Nothing so gentle 
as real strength. It's been said that gentleness is not weakness. To someone to be gentle is not the same as somebody being weak. Like if somebody's just weak, that's just how they are always. They're not having to display any gentleness. They could, if they're incredibly weak and they're squeezing you as hard as they can, you're just like, what's happening? You know, it feels like they're being gentle, right? But gentleness is strength under control. It's you have the ability to use force, to use your willpower, to display that, but instead you choose to be gentle. And we see this modeled in the life of Jesus. At any given moment, Jesus could do whatever he wants to do at a whim. He could will things into existence, but instead Jesus chooses the way of gentleness. How does Christ compel you to himself? Is it with force and with the thunderstorm and with lightning? And he, you don't know it's with the spirit of gentleness that Jesus draws you in. The scripture tells us that it is this gentleness that leads us to repentance. It's this drawing in. And so we first must be gentle. The next thing we must be is humble. Paul says here to consider ourselves, to see ourselves accurately, to watch out for ourselves because we can fall too. One of the things that grieves me in the church so bad is that when people sin differently than we do, we think, it's, we think that we're better than them. Or when their struggle is a different struggle, we think that we're better than them. And there's no more gross thing in the body of Christ than spiritual pride. Somebody comes in and they genuinely struggle with alcohol or drug addiction or sexual addiction. And we think because I haven't touched a drink in 25 years and I've never smoked a cigarette and I ain't so much as seen a rated R movie, right? With all this spiritual pride welling up within us, we think that we're better than them. And the scripture says, take watch, be careful, because you will fall if that is your heart posture. And so nothing kills an opportunity for conversations about sin and restoration like a, like a hard posture of spiritual pride. We all come considering ourselves. We all come first having taken a look in the mirror. Jesus says, why are you worried about a speck in your brother's eye? He says, when you've got a telephone pole hanging out of yours. He says, you're so concerned about, brother, I really don't think you should be watching those kind of movies. When you are living a life of spiritual pride and you think you're better than everybody and you think you're more holy than everybody and you think that God has placed you on this pedestal of judgment, he says, that's far worse. And this is the conversation he's having with the Pharisees about how they're treating the people who want to um, come into relationship with Yahweh. And so we must consider ourselves we must first take a look in the mirror realize our own brokenness and come out of that heart posture look dude i'm jacked up just the same as everybody else but we need to have this conversation about how you're speaking to people i've made mistakes too i've struggled in this way too but we have to have this conversation coming with a heart posture of humility the next thing he tells us to do is to carry each other's burdens now this verse has been often used to be like um, when somebody's going through a hard time, make it your hard time too. And there's defi definitely biblical precedence for that. Weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice, like this idea of biblical community. But that's not what this passage is talking about. This idea of carrying one another's burdens has much more to do with how we respond to sin in the community. To carry one another's burden is not just to empathize with the pain and hurt that comes from, into a person's life because of their sin but it's to share in the responsibility of navigating the consequences of that sin. 
Let me say it again. To carry each other's burdens is not to empathize with the pain and hurt that comes into a person's life because of sin, but is to share in the responsibility of navigating the consequences of that sin. What do I mean? If somebody's sin leads them to uh, unwanted pregnancy, the call for the church is not to say, bummer, I'm really sorry, that's awful. Have a good day. The goal of the church is to say, how can we come alongside you and support you in bringing this new life into earth? Do you need diapers? Do you need help going to classes? Do you need trips up to the hospital? Do you need to recommend a pediatrician? What do you need from us to help you come alongside of you in this manner? Not to come with the spirit of judgment and kind of, well, you're not married. How did that happen, you know? But coming with the spirit of, we want to not only feel bad for you in your situation, but we're going to make your situation our situation. We're going to make your hurt our hurt. We're going to make your pain our pain, and we're going to deal with it together as a family. If somebody's sin leads to an addiction, the call of community is to deploy all necessary resources to lead the believer into a place of wholeness and healing. If somebody here is genuinely struggling, our reason to say, I'm so sorry you struggle with that, but how can we come alongside you in you coming to a place of sobriety and health? If someone's sin leads to relational brokenness, the call of the community is to advocate for reconciliation, forgiveness, and restoration. Paul says here that by doing this, we fulfill the law of Christ. And what is the law of Christ? That love covers a multitude of sins. That the goal of the church isn't just to call out sin so that it's out in the open and we all know about it, but the goal is to say, I know this is a struggle now let me fight with you through it. Let me walk with you through it. Let me come alongside you in this mess. And he says, we are living the reality of the, of the law of Christ when we allow love to cover a multitude of sins. Because what example do we have in Jesus? Did Jesus come down and say, wow, you guys really jacked this whole thing up. <laughs> you know, I feel terrible. This is really bad. Well, I'm praying for you. Have a good day. We hope it gets better. Change maybe. Exercise more. I don't know. Do something because this isn't working. I'll be back later. No, Jesus came and he bore our sins. He absorbed the cost and the penalty for our sins and he made it his own. And he laid down his life. And so the call for the Christian community is not just a, that's a bummer, bro, but it's to say, how can I come alongside you? How can I make your fight my fight. And so he says for us to not be deceived, to test our own actions, to consider our own hearts, to be mindful of spiritual, spiritual pride, and to fulfill the law of Christ by allowing love to cover a multitude of sins. Now Paul, in typical Paul fashion, does a real quick like detour and then come back to the main road when he says this verse here. Nevertheless, let the one who receives instruction in the word share in all good things with their instructor. For us, we're reading somebody else's mail, so it sounds like, what? You know, it's like we're talking about dealing with sin in the community and then sharing all good things with your instructor. What are you saying? So Paul is speaking to, there's a, there's a lot of stuff happening in Galatia at this point, but there are a lot of people who are like discrediting Paul, and there are people who have come in and said, like, Paul's not legit and all this other stuff. So Paul's kind of fighting all of that. But one of the things he's saying here is that this heart posture of humility, it leads to generosity. He's saying, if you guys have been, if you as a community have been blessed, have been helped, have been taught, have been instructed in the way of Christ, he's saying share in all good things. Basically, Paul is pleading for financial support, basically. He's like, 
I planted this church. I poured my blood and sweat out for this church. He's like, and you guys are already throwing me under the rug. He's like, I was with you in tears, and we had all these situations together. He says, part of being a part of somebody who's a part of this community is you sow back into it with generosity, sharing in all good things. And so Paul takes a quick derail there. But then it says this, verse 7. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please the flesh and from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the spirit from the spirit will reap eternal life. So the next idea that Paul wants us to understand is this idea of sowing and reaping. Brothers and sisters, hear me. Your life is the sum of the seeds that you sow. Your life is the sum of the seeds that you sow. Most of us want to live a different life but keep sowing the seeds of the same life. Some of us have the desire to want to be physically fit. We see the commercials, we see the Baywatch bodies, we see the magazines at the checkout, and we're like, I want that, right? But as we're checking out at the grocery line, right, we have more bags of chips than we have vegetables. And so they're conflicting, right? We're sowing into something and desiring something else and hoping that somehow the molecular structure of the chip will change to a carrot as it descends into my belly. We're hoping that somehow something will change and that one day we'll wake up and dang, I look good. That doesn't work that way. You sow into that life. You sow in kale and celery and chicken breast and brown rice, right? And you reap six pack. If you sow hot Cheeto, Dorito, Frito, you see they all rhyme, you sow into those things, you, you reap the benefits of whatever that is, whether it's a larger panza or a bigger butt or whatever it is, right? You reap the benefits of those things and so, or the detriments. But your life is a sum of the seeds that you sow. Some of you have a genuine desire to follow Jesus, but the seeds that you keep sowing in your life are sowing to the flesh. You're watching things you shouldn't watch. You're spending time with people you shouldn't spend time with. You're doing things that you shouldn't do. And somehow, miraculously, you're hoping that on Sunday morning, after the sermon, something will change. But when you live Monday through Saturday the same way, your life is a sum of the seeds that you sow. It's a real simple principle. Whatever you put in, you get out. Whatever you sow in, you reap later. Some of you are still dealing with the consequences of seeds you've sown years ago. You sowed seeds into a bad marriage, right? And you're reaping the benefits of that, those years of a bad marriage. You've sowed seeds of relational discord in your family and you're still reaping the fruit of that relational discord. You wanna know the way things start to change? Start sowing different seeds. Now, we get frustrated because the process doesn't happen right away. I said I was sorry. Why aren't we friends again? Because it takes more time. It takes more time sewing. I had a salad last week. Why haven't I lost eight pounds? Because you've got to keep doing those things. You've got to keep sewing. We want to live a life of instant gratification, that where we just put a little bit of halfway effort, that we're going to reap all this amazing fruit. If you want to follow Jesus, you have to sow seeds in your life of somebody who follows Jesus. Jesus. And then as time goes on, things change. People get frustrated in following Jesus because they do it for a week and say, it didn't work for me. I'm like, you have to give it more time than that. You have to sow more seeds to reap those things. And I believe that this is a stern warning as it is here for the church in Galatia as it is here, is today. 
right now, God is speaking to you by way of his spirit about, about bad seeds you're sowing in your life. That as we started to talk about this instantly, the spirit brought up things into your mind about seeds that you're sowing that are not pleasing to him. Heed the warning. If you sow in the flesh, the scripture says, you'll reap death. That chaos, damage, heartbreak will ensue in your life if you continue to sow to the flesh. The response then is then instead, sow in the spirit and instead reap life. What you plant, you will reap. So plant something beautiful. Plant something worth it. Sow something in for the kingdom. We're running out of time, so we have to move forward. He says this in verse um, 9. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. This is a word for somebody today. Harvest is coming. You may be, dis- you may be discouraged because you've been trying You've been sowing seeds. You've been sowing seeds. You've been sowing seeds, and there's not breakthrough yet. You've been sowing seeds of kindness and love and, and, and graciousness, and the relationship still isn't restored. You've been sowing seeds of love and care, but the marriage still isn't made whole. You've been sowing seeds into your spiritual life, but you're still struggling with that same sin. Brothers and sisters, I'm telling you, keep sowing. Harvest is coming. He says, don't get weary in doing good. You want to know why? Because it's easy to get weary in doing good. It's easy to be like, this isn't working. I might as well go back to the old way. At least I know what I was getting that way. This is not. Keep sowing. Harvest is coming. You will reap that fruit. And when you begin to taste of the fruit that you keep sowing into, you'll begin to experience the reality of the kingdom of God. That when you genuinely follow Jesus, it leads to life and life to the full. Brothers and sisters, it takes time. It takes time. And that's something that we have to know as a family as we come together to talk about sin and struggles is that these things take time. It's like, I talked to him last week. He should know he just breaks up with her. It's real simple. He's, you know, but these things take time. So keep sowing this person you're investing in, this person you want change to happen in their life. I'm telling you, it's about a lifetime journey. It's not about a momentary change. It's a lifetime of sowing into somebody's life that eventually you'll start to see the fruit of that. Especially as parents, you see this. Because when your kids are little, it feels like you're constantly disciplining. It feels like you're constantly correcting. It feels like you're constantly like, I said, don't do that. I said, don't go there. I said, you know, you're doing all these things, but you're sowing seeds, so that when they're adults, that when they're on their own, that when they come to this place of maturation, the fruit of those seeds will come to manifest itself. And at the time, it just feels like you're constantly sowing, like, when is something going to come out of the ground already? Like, I've been doing this for the longest time. It takes time. But keep planting seeds. Keep investing. The next thing Paul says is this. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those who belong to the family of believers. And so the idea here is that we take care of our family. The most loving thing that we can do for one another is show each other our blind spots. Now, we believe this best happens around a table at community. We don't believe it really happens good in these kind of settings, you know? It's like someone's talking about the game on Sunday and you come up, hey, I really want to talk to you about the way that you use that word. It's like, oh my gosh, you know, this is not kind of the appropriate setting, but we believe that best happens around a table, around a meal. This doesn't happen through text. 
hey, bro, just wanted to say, you really hurt my feelings today. I feel like you could kind of be rude. Let me know what you think, you know? How is that going to go for you, right? It's in person where hearts can be shared and, and, and intention could be understood. It's with gentleness and humility and all the things that we've talked about thus far, but we believe these conversations have to happen. That's the way we best take care of our family. And with that, I want to say this, take advantage of the opportunity around you. Some of you right now are being called to be a Nathan. Now, do you think Nathan looked forward to doing that to David? David could have said, psych, you dead. And that's it. That's his life. That's how it goes, you know? Nathan absolutely had fear. He absolutely had fear about confronting David about, hey, dude, I know about the affair that you had and how you had Uriah killed. You know, it's like, you know, there's a witness. Take him out. You know what I'm saying? It's like he could have responded still in the flesh or the wrong way. Being a Nathan doesn't feel like a good thing. Nobody wants to be a Nathan. Nobody signs up. Oh, yeah. I'll tell them what's wrong with them. What's their name? Where do they live? You know, nobody wants to do those things. But I look back on my life and I thank God that men and women who love me, love me enough to confront me. And it's evidence of God working in their lives and in my life. And I look back with nothing but gratitude. At first, do I like it? No, I'm not like, you think I'm insensitive? Yes, you know, tell me more. But... As time goes on, I realized, man, there was so much truth to what was said. And so, if God is calling you to be a Nathan, be a Nathan. Because if you genuinely love that person, you'll tell them. You'll tell them what's best for their life. And not on your authority, what you think is best, but on what Jesus says is best, you know. And if there's any issues with that, take it up with him. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's take it up with Jesus. Nathan's responsibility wasn't to change David but it was just to speak God's word. And that's something that we have to remember too as a community. Our responsibility is not to change one another. It's to point each other to Christ. It's to say, look, that's the example. Remember, that's the example. Pray about these things. Now, um, I really want to get into some practical things as I ask the worship team to come up and we close. Just some real practical things about how we do this well as a community. Um, first, I want to say this is always going to be messy. No one's ever going to nail confronting you on something. No one's ever just going to like do it so perfectly, say all the words you wanted them to say, say it all the way that you wanted them to say it, and you're just like, yes, I received that word, brother, thank you. You're going to feel defensiveness always rise up in you. You're going to feel, oh, how dare you? And you know, that's always going to be an initial response. And to be honest with you, we're all going to fail at confronting one another well. We're going to say things maybe how we shouldn't. We're going to use poor word choice. We're going to use bad analogies. You know, some of us are going to want to take this Nathan idea and be like, let me tell you a story about a crackhead on Central, right? We're going to like start doing something. And it's like, hey, no, 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 no. That's not a good way to confront one another, you know? And so we're going to do this wrong, and it's going to be messy, and it's going to be weird. But God speaks through all of that. There have been so many times where somebody's confronted me on something, and it's like, and it's from somebody that has no business confronting me on something. It's like, dude, you got a whole lot of things that you know, and the way that they did it and how they did it, but man, God's truth was in it. It's like, God, why do you send people that I don't want to hear from to tell me, talk to me about things? But we have to receive things with the spirit of humility. And look, not everything that somebody says to you is like from the Lord, so don't take that as that. There'll be times we confront each other, and it's just somebody expressing a preference, you know, like, I really don't think you should wear jeans like that or something, you know, and you're just like, okay. But what we do is we, we consider it, we weigh it before the Lord, we take it to community, and we decide from there. So the first thing, you consider it. Think about it. 
is there any truth to what they said? Maybe what they said is a fraction, a quarter of what they said was true. Receive that truth. Really consider it, really think about your lives. Then the next thing you do is you take it to the Lord. Lord, is there anything else true in what they said? Or at the time where you, maybe you considered it and you're like, nope, they whack, take it to the Lord. Lord, is there something for you in there? And the Lord's like, actually, son, I wanted to tell you this. Actually, daughter, I wanted to say this. Ooh. Next, take it to community. Hey guys, am I insensitive sometimes? Oh yeah, dude, well, you know, it's like, oh my gosh, I had no idea, you know? But they kind of bring it into light, and yet, yeah, man, I've definitely had an encounter of that or experienced that. You bring it to community, and we work through it together. And also in the same way, you think about it, that doesn't make any sense. The Lord, is that from you? Silent, okay, community, do you guys think that I'm this, that, or whatever? No, man, we don't say that in your life at all. All right, sweet, set it aside. Right, but we receive with the spirit of humility. None of us are above correction. None of us are above being told that we're wrong. The next thing I really believe that it was for us is as I was kind of putting this together, I feel like um, one of the things that the spirit wants to do right now is that a wave of repentance is coming over our church right now. That the spirit of God has spoken something to every single person in this room. And we need to respond. We can't just say, oh Lord, thank you for that word peace i'm going to lunch but really take these things so whatever it is that the lord spoke to you as we enter this time of worship we need to repent of that which means to change our mind and to change our direction and i believe with that comes confession which means sharing that sin with somebody and it's not so that they know your junk but the scripture tells us clearly in james that if we confess our sins to one another we will be healed and we believe that when sin is brought to the light, it loses its power. And so I'm gonna ask uh, our leadership team just to be available up here in the front for people who just feel like they need to share whatever it is that God has convicted them of. If you're still working through something on it, share it with the Lord now in worship, but I wanna encourage you to do that. And secondly, again this, what we desire, how we live this teaching out is by investing and signing up. It's by doing it. We can't be people who just talk about it and say, oh, wow, wonderful, thank you so much, awesome. See you next week, but we invest. So I'm gonna challenge you, I'm gonna exhort you, buy in. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for your word. God, even loves you. To see all the new content coming from Zion City, follow us on Instagram or like us on Facebook. And to partner with us financially, visit our website at zioncitychurch.net.